Well, once again, good morning. It's always, it's always difficult to know exactly how to jump into this section after I've done the baptism thing, right? Because I've done the baptism, and I've said good morning, and then I get up here, and then I don't have anything, like, transitory to say to get from the band to this. And so I just made it more awkward for you than it was, but just so you know, thought we should share in the awkwardness this morning, because it's awkward for me. <clears throat> but I am excited to be here with you this morning. I, I, I really... Uh, I hope you're excited. I hope you're excited by what God is doing here at First Baptist Church. That, that's crazy to me when I thought about it this week and realized that we are seven for seven, that there are seven weeks that we've had so far in this year, and we've had a baptism for every week. Now, they, we might have had one every week, but that's a pretty cool stat, and I, I would be interested in knowing when the last time we had that here at this church. I know for a fact that it's never been true in any church that I've been in, that we had as many baptisms as there were weeks and I know many churches that I've been in where we didn't have seven baptisms in a year, let alone in the last 30 days. So God is doing some pretty cool things, and I'm excited for it. I'm, I'm here for it. I hope you are as well. I hope you're excited to see what God is doing and will continue to do. And uh, we look forward to, to what the, the days and the months uh, in front of us have for us as we continue to follow God and to attempt to faithfully serve him and to follow his lead in our lives. Will you go with me to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to the word of God. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, you are amazing. And we believe that the truth of your word is not just a relic for the past, Lord, but it is a relevant truth for today. God, that you are still working in miraculous and wonderful ways. That your spirit still moves across the face of the earth and in your people, Lord, that you are still seeking to do a mighty work in and through your body, the church. Lord, I think about the revival that's happening right now at Asbury University as they continue with what, what is now going into approaching 100 hours straight of a worship service. God, an amazing revival happening there, Lord. And we pray that you would pour that same spirit of revival out on us, Lord, that you would continue to stir your spirit within our hearts to move in, in wonderful ways and to use us in mighty ways in the world in which we live. God, speak to us now as we come to the end of our vision statement, as we talk about where it all culminates, and that is with working together to share Jesus with the world. So speak to us now, speak through me in Jesus' name, amen. It's not something that we give a lot of thought to, but I want to talk for a moment about last words. Like last words, what, what, would, what would your last words be? I remember the first time that I flew international to go to a mission trip on which I didn't take my family. I didn't take Robin, I didn't take the kids, and it was really the first time I'd flown over the ocean. We'd gone down to the Dominican Republic, and, and that's just not that far. But I was flying from um, Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., and was flying over to Amsterdam and then down to India, and, and I was terrified. I hadn't done anything that, that was not really domestic, and so to fly across the ocean, uh, there's, there's, I don't want to die, but if I chose the way that I really didn't want to die, it's drowning in the ocean in a crashed plane. And so as I'm sitting on the, the plane waiting for things to move for us to take off, I'm thinking about all the things that can go wrong, right? Like I'm seeing all of these, these, these rivets and these nuts and these bolts that human beings have put into that plane, like human beings that I don't know, that I'm assuming are competent human beings, that understand the engineering of an airplane and how it's supposed to work. 
And, and I do know some people that work on airplanes, and I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I don't want them working on my airplane. <laughs> and so I'm watching all of these things that, that are happening, and as I'm sitting in there, I'm like, you know what? This could be the end of days for me. And so I start sending out text messages. First, I sent one to Pastor Mike, who used to be our, our pastor of family life here. And I was like, hey, Mike, like, I'm going on a trip to India. If I die in a fiery crash in the middle of the ocean, please make sure my family's okay, all right? So I send him off the text. I send him off that text, and he doesn't respond. So I'm like, I'm going to assume he got it. But just to make sure, I'm going to send one to someone else. So I, I sent one to Nathan, and Pastor Nathan, and I said, hey, P, I'm heading over to India. I'm on the plane right now. If, if I crash in, in a fiery ball of death and I die, make sure that my wife and my kids are okay. Make sure they know that I love them. Make sure that they got any legal help. And Nathan's like, oh, bro, you know I've got you. And I was like, sweet, someone has got me. And then I send one to Robin. I'm like, hey, the last, the last 18 years have been an absolute pressure. I love you and the kids so much. If I happen to die in a flaming ball of death, please know that I love you and I hope you have a good life. And she sends back one of those faces that's like, <laughs> it's like, well, good. At least we know she's going to be okay. I wait a few minutes, and she sends me back a text. She's like, well, you did tell me that you're worth more dead than you are alive, so don't want you to go, but if you do, I promise you we will have a good life. But last words, it's like one of those things that you don't think about until you're into it. And, and I, in preparation for this message, I looked up some last words from some prominent figures throughout history. Now, I want to be clear. I'm going to share some last words, but just because I'm sharing the last words from a, ver a person or an entity does not mean I am suggesting that, that they are what people claim they are or that I am aligning myself with their religious beliefs or political philosophies. Everybody understand that? I need to see heads nod or we're not doing this, okay? So some famous last words. Oscar Wilde, his famous last words were, this wallpaper is dreadful. One of us will have to go. Interestingly enough, after he died, the hotel immediately changed the wallpaper in that room. Banker Richard B. Mellon, he played a running game of tag with his brother for seven years. And with his last dying breath, he reached his hand up, put it on his brother's shoulder and said, last tag, and died. <clears throat> that's, that's some planning right there, folks. I, I appreciate that. Playwright Wilson Misner, to a priest who, who was talking to him at the moment, said, the priest said, I'm sure you want to talk to me right now. And the playwright, Wilson Misner, said, why should I talk to you? I've been talking to your boss. <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci, famous, world-famous artist, his last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality I should have had. That's crazy, isn't it? One of the greatest artists that we still respect today dies, and his last words are about his insecurities with his ability as an artist, that he didn't do enough, didn't use it enough. All right, here we go. You ready? Karl Marx, famous last words. Go on, get out, he said. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. Buddha his famous last words are, Behold, O monks, this is my advice to you. All component things in the world are unsettled. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own redemption. And you've got to think, those two, those two quotes right there, I have problems with them. 
I mean, first of all, to assume that you have, had, have said enough in your life, that you are great enough, that you have nothing to say at your last breath. It's a great ideal, but I just don't see it being the case. I, I would tend to think more in line with Leonardo da Vinci. That in those moments, even as I sat on that plane, I'm thinking about what are the things I haven't done? What are the things that I needed to do? Important things, important places, people that I should have, I should have done this, that, or the other with. I, I can't imagine say, saying to someone, get out, I have nothing else to say. I've already told you all I've got. Or even Buddha. Hey, go, go work and make sure you do a good, enough good works because the world is unsettled and so you want to settle things for yourself. I struggle with that. Because is there enough good to be done to feel like I've canceled out all of my faults and failures? I don't know there are. Well, let's look at one other set of last words. In Matthew chapter, excuse me, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we read the last words of Jesus. And, and we're going to jump around in this. We're going to look at every iteration of Jesus' last words. But we're going to start here in Acts 1.8. And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And these are the last words of Jesus Christ. And you know what's interesting to me? Is that here we are reading them at the beginning of a book known as the Acts of the Apostles. Right? That's, for those of you that don't know, that is what the, the book Acts is about. The, the original title was the Acts of the Apostles. And so starting from this point on, chapter 1 kind of lays the foundation, gives us a, a summary of the end of the Gospels. And the rest of the book is showing the disciples living out this thesis statement right here in Acts 1-8. That they are going to go and be his witnesses throughout the entire known world. But you know what's really interesting to me about these last words of Jesus? Is they don't just start the book of Acts. They end at least three of the Gospels. And if we were to take them in some, what we realize from these, these words, we're going to look at the other ones here in a moment, is this. That we are all commanded to be witnesses for Jesus. We are all commanded to be witnesses for Jesus. These last words we read right here in Acts as they kick things up. This, this thesis statement. But let's turn back for a moment to Matthew chapter 28. We'll go back to the first of the Gospels as they appear in our Bibles. So Matthew chapter 28. Go ahead and flip with me if you will. Matthew chapter 28. These are the last words of Jesus as according to the, the Apostle Matthew here in Verses 18 and following. Matthew 28, 18 and following. It says this. Then Jesus came to them, them being his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. So here in the book of Matthew, we see the last words of Jesus, the last recorded works in the gospel of Matthew are consistent. Go and make disciples. 
right? We might, we might look at Luke, or Acts, excuse me, and say, go and be my witnesses. Let's flip over a couple more pages. Let's look at the end of Mark. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 20. It says this. Mark 16, 15 through 20. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. So we see the end of Mark here. We see once again the last words of Jesus. And in this instance, they are, go and preach the gospel. Go and preach the gospel. Let's go one more. We're going to go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, verses 45 through 49, Luke 24, 45 through 49, it says this. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So we have four different instances, right? Four different instances that give us the, the last words, the last will and testament, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Which is interesting because it's not his last words before he dies. There's different last words if we go back, but these are Jesus' second go-round at last words. His first last words were like, hey, you're all going to deny me, which is kind of an interesting parallel, isn't it, or a contrast. That before Jesus dies, he's, he's sitting in the last room, and he looks at his disciples, and he said, all of you are going to deny me. All of you are going to fall away because of me, and one of you who's sitting here is actually going to be the cause of the problem. You are going to actually betray me into the hands of the leaders. Th those are Jesus' first set of last words. Like, can you imagine being the disciples listening to that and, and that's what you're hearing? Or, or if you want to be more technical, the last words of Jesus are, are to the disciples who are praying, saying, hey, could you not watch with me for one hour in prayer? Oh, here they come. Not exactly the last words you want to be hearing, right? And the last words that you're hearing aren't, aren't, you don't want to be hearing, hey, you messed this up or you're going to mess this up. Well, the good news for the disciples is they got a second chance. Christ dies, is buried, rises from the grave, and he comes back. And as he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, he gives the disciples a decidedly more, decidedly more hopeful outlook. He says, look, you're going to receive the power from the Holy Spirit that I've promised you. And when you have that Holy Spirit within you, it's going to empower you to do this work. And you are going together to work to share my gospel with the world. And these are the last words of Jesus that as we read them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The only gospel that doesn't present these last words is John. And then we see them again to start the book of Acts. 
Now, the, the wording in each of these passages is slightly different. But the truth is, if we are, if we are thinking about the intended, the, the intended principle in the phrase, they are the same, are they not? I mean, if we, if we look at it in principle, are the words not essentially saying the same things? That you are going to go, you, you're it, boys and girls. Like, I'm, I'm heading off into heaven, and I am leaving the keys to the kingdom in your hands. And it is going to rise and fall on how well you represent me. But don't worry, it's not all on you, because I'm sending the Holy Spirit to make sure that you cannot fail. You'll receive the power you need to make sure that you do what you need to do to be my witnesses. Disciples of Jesus have been given the shared responsibility and privilege of representing Jesus to the world. Allow me to say that again. Disciples of Jesus have been given the shared responsibility and privilege of representing Jesus to the world. Now one of the phrases that I like to use often around here at First Baptist Church is that repetition means remember. Repetition means remember. And we normally think about that in the context of a, of a flow of a passage, right? Like we're reading 10 or 15 verses and, and we'll see a phrase that appears several times in one passage. We're like, oh, that, that author is really trying to make this point to us. That, that psalm is really trying to tell us that, that the, the mercy and the love of the Lord endures forever. His love endures forever. His love, we know that that is the focal point where the author is trying to get us to move our attention and, and trying to draw us in. Right? We, we can see a bunch of those things. Jesus restoring Peter at the end of the book of John. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, you know that I love you, Lord. And he's like, okay, then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter's like, Lord, you know all things and is offended. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Now Jesus is using those three to, because he's wanting to affirm in Peter that calling to do the work of the Lord and equally to what Peter had done in denying the Lord and denying the Lord three times. So we see this repetition means remember, and we think about it again in the context of a given passage. But if repetition means remember in the context of a text, one text, how much more so when the three different authors see fit to add essentially the same words or the same phrase to their gospel accounts? And really, there's a fourth. I realize that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. But when four books in the New Testament either end or start with the same phrase or principle, don't you think that should say something to us? I mean, shouldn't that communicate a sense of importance to us? Now, I, I'll admit, I know that there is debate as to whether or not Mark 16, 15 through 20 is in the original text. You may even look at your text of your Bible, and it may have it, like, and mine, it has it in smaller lettering. And then right at the beginning of the text there in Mark, it says that some of the earliest manuscripts do not have, uh, or some of the earliest manuscripts and some ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. Now, this is important for academic purposes. This is not bad. I just want to be clear with you all. The translators of the Bible that are working to put together our translations are not trying to remove the words of God from Scripture. This is not a tool of the devil 
The men and women that are doing the interpretive work at these seminaries and Bible schools are, are working very hard to make sure that what they present to you is as close to the original manuscript as they can get. That's what they're doing. So, so when they make this phrase, all they're telling us is, is that there are old texts, and the old, far, closest you get to, the, the farther you go back age-wise in a text, the more reliable it's often thought to be. Because less, less changes could have been worked in. Now, I, I say all that to say, I, I admit that it is of value for them to note that some texts don't have this. But I think it's utterly inconsequential for us to lose sleep over whether it is authoritative in Mark chapter 16. You know why? Because it says it three other places. Is it inconsistent with the rest of what the Bible says? No. You know what? I would go the other way with that, as a matter of fact. I wouldn't say, hey, Mark 16 is such because it was added possibly later. It's less valid, and we should probably ignore that text. I would go the other way. Listen, let me ask you this. How confident, how, how sure and certain would you have to be of words that you're going to add to Scripture so confident that you're going to add, but not only that you're going to add words to Scripture, but you're going to add them as a direct quote attributed to Jesus. How sure of a disciple of Jesus in the first century would you have to be of the veracity and validity and reliability of those words so that you would change, quote unquote, or add to Scripture? I would have to be pretty doggone confident, right? Now, you may say to me, well, Revelation says don't add to this book of prophecy. just want you to know that only applies to Revelation. That, that statement does not apply as a, a blunt statement to the end of the Bible. That is, they are specifically talking about that book. If, if the, through history, God has allowed these words to be added to Scripture, I am of the opinion that I can trust them. And I can trust them because they're consistent. We have all of these witnesses here where it is consistently telling us to go into the world and be these witnesses, to go into the world and make disciples, to go into the world and, and preach the gospel. And here Luke sees them as so important that he ends one book and begins another with them. These are important words, the last words of Jesus. And, and I, I want to be clear about something. Jesus is not simply presenting an option for our consideration here. As we read these, these four texts, Jesus is say, isn't saying, hey, you know, listen, if you don't mind, since you're already going to be out doing whatever you're going to do, it would be great if you represented me every now and again. This is not, this is not an optional thing. Jesus is issuing a direct command. You are to do this. It is in the imperative not the go. The go is incidental. You're going to go. We've talked about this here before, right? Like when we get done with this service in an hour and a half, you're going to be dismissed and you can, you're going to go out the doors and head home. Right? You're going to go. It's just going to happen. Going is part of life. So the going is incidental. You know what's not incidental? Preach the gospel. That's imperative. You must do this. Make disciples. It is imperative. You must do this. You will be my witnesses. It is imperative. You must do this. The ask isn't always optional. Now let me give you a, a for instance. How many of you have ever as parents called to your children and said, hey, can, can you put this jacket away that you left out? Or, hey, I need you to clean your room. Or any number of, 
I need you to, could you go do your homework? Any parents ever asked your kids to do any of those? Right? How many of you have all of a sudden your child becomes Perry Mason and you're now in a negotiating session? While they are giving you all of the, the logical reasons why they should continue doing what they're doing or why they need to do something else before that. They could have been doing nothing, but all of a sudden they have something that is of utmost importance that they have to do before they do what you told them. Any parents that would say that? I've, I've had that before. Listen, I'll own that. Maybe some of your precious cherubs are, are better behaved than mine. That's fine. I know that I wasn't that precious cherub when I was a kid. That I was always like, well, why do I have to do this? Think of all the reasons that perhaps, again, your, your cherubs don't demonstrate such insubordinate attitudes in your homes. Mine do occasionally. But I'm guessing that they actually have, at some point in time, been insubordinate in your home. And they've, they've had these logic debates with you. And you know what? I, I think they came across it honest. Because do we not do the same thing with God? Do we not read scriptures and then try to find ways that we can worm our way out of it and we can say, well, I'm just not gifted in that way. Or, or well, God just hasn't called me to that ministry. And we even use theological, biblical language to defend us not doing what God has not given us an option to not do. We want to explain it away. We want to find ways to, to make it other than. Brothers and sisters, God is not interested in our well-thought-out arguments or our firmly-held opinions or our personal preferences. Our relationship with Jesus is founded upon our submission to Christ Jesus the King as Lord and obedience to his commands. That isn't what saves us. That's true. But it is what we have been saved to. So when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, when Jesus says, go and preach the gospel to all nations, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, that applies to you. That applies to me. You must do this. It's really interesting to me because, again, Matthew and Mark are really firm. They're really pushing it. You must do this. It's not an option. You know what's interesting, though, is that Luke, in both of his instances, are, are, is pointing it out that, that not only must we do it, but we don't have a choice because it is who we are, right? Matthew says, go, make disciples. Mark says, go, preach the gospel. Luke says, you will be witnesses. The fact is that each of us in this room, if we have accepted Jesus as our Savior, if we have decided to follow him, if we wear the name of Christ, we will be witnesses that represent Jesus. The question is, what kind of witness will we be? Will we be productive and positive? Will we affirm the claims of Scripture and the truth of who Christ is and his power and presence in our lives? Or will we, like Peter, deny? Bring about doubt and questions. And I think the truth is that at times... We can swing both ways. But we should certainly understand that we are called, we are commanded to represent Jesus in this world, to serve as witnesses. All who have shared in the experience of God's saving grace are called to serve as witnesses who share Jesus with the world. It was given to the original disciples 
right before Pentecost, the 11 remaining plus the 100 who had joined them in the upper room. And the, but the implication of the Great Commission as stated in the Gospels and as evidenced by what takes place in the book of Acts is that those who come to faith share the same calling. I want to point a couple things out about this calling that, that we share. The first is this. The calling has no age limit. Did you notice that? Read four different texts. Did anyone notice anything in any of those texts? And you can feel free to go back where it says, okay, so the age of accountability for sharing Jesus is 15. Because then you can really understand it. And when, when you reach 55 and you're out of the workforce and you've retired, you don't got to worry about it anymore because you've retired. So you've aged out. Anybody see anything like that? I mean, let's just not consider just the Gospels next. Find me anywhere in the Bible where your age determines whether or not it is appropriate for you to share Jesus. Any takers? I mean, I would gladly have that debate right now. The fact is it doesn't exist. We don't age into or age out of the Gospel work of Jesus Christ. Second, the calling doesn't have gender restrictions. It doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you, you boys, you go. Now, we like to think that it's just the 12 because they were there. But you do realize that if you look in Acts, when the Spirit falls, it falls on men and women, young and old. And there, there were the, the 11 original disciples remaining, but you still had over 100 people in the room. Estimates are that there was 120 plus that had come to Christ, that shared in the, the receiving of the Spirit, that, were, that heard from Jesus, you will be my witnesses, that went out into the world. There is no gender, there, there's, no, there's no gender restrictions on who represents Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, you are called and commanded to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to be witnesses. Y'all hear me. Doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your gender. The, the calling doesn't carry any prerequisite skills or prior experience. So I don't want to hear from you, well, I don't have the skill in that area. Neither did I. I still don't know that I have it today. I'm going to talk about it in a minute, but I'll give it to you now. We just had testimony from an eight-year-old boy. The best sermon that was preached this morning was preached by an eight-year-old boy before we even started the service. Tate and Ship can preach the gospel and bring attention to Jesus, then who amongst us cannot? So long as we draw breath, we are to follow Jesus and serve as his witnesses. Each and every one of us are called and commanded to share Jesus with the world. Here's the good news of the Gospels and Acts. That what Christ has called us to, the Holy Spirit will empower us to do. What Christ has called us to, the Holy Spirit will empower us to do. The coming of the Holy Spirit is a divine sign that the ministry of Jesus has been passed from Christ to his church. If we look over and just flip a page and we look in Acts chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4. In Acts 2, 1 through 4, it says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So we see this falling of of the Holy Spirit that comes here in the beginning of Acts. And it's accompanied by two signs. The first sign is the blowing of a violent wind from heaven. The, the, The blowing of the pneuma. It's it's the same word that we see in the Old Testament where the the, the Spirit of the Lord is moving over the face of the earth and the the breath of God comes in the man. It It is the pneuma of God, the breath of God, the wind of God. So here we, we see at the beginning of the church age, as Christ is, ascends into heaven, the disciples wait, and we see that a fresh breath of God's Spirit comes and enters the house where the disciples are, are sitting. It's the Spirit of God entering his body, the church, bringing life to it, that it might bear his image in the world. Second sign we see is tongues of fire resting on the disciples in the house. It is a visual sign. We have this auditory sign, the sound of the wind, and we have a visual sign, tongues of fire, which throughout the Old Testament, God is represented as being a consuming fire. So here we see this fire of God descending and settling on the disciples in the house, both a visual and an auditory sign of the power and presence of God. And what happens immediately after the Spirit falls? You notice that the Spirit falls and they don't, take, they don't take a few days to process their experience. The Spirit falls on them. They receive the Spirit and immediately they, they are compelled to obey the command of Jesus. The Spirit falls on them and they immediately begin preaching the gospel. Sharing the gospel in powerful ways. Now this parallels the beginning of the ministry of Jesus as we see it in Luke chapter 3. If we look back in Luke chapter 3... We find the baptism of Jesus in the beginning of his ministry. Luke 3, verses 21 through 23. It says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So we see actually the same evidences here, similar evidences, that we see in Acts, don't we? We we see a sound coming from heaven. The voice of God. We see a, a visual sign coming in the form of the Holy Spirit and resting upon Jesus. And what happens immediately after Jesus is baptized... What happens immediately after the Father and the Spirit make their presence known? Jesus goes and he begins his ministry. I think that's so cool. That at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we have this clear manifestation of the power and the presence of Almighty God. Of the Spirit's affirmation, the Lord's, the God Almighty's affirmation on the ministry of his Son. And then we find, subsequent to Jesus announcing to his church, his body, what they're going to do in the world, we see similar affirmations with the sign of the the fire coming down and the sound of the wind of God. As as God engages and enacts the ministry of his kingdom through his body, the church. 
John the Baptist, right before he baptizes Jesus, prophesied that this was going to happen. In Luke 3, 16, it says, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We see John the Baptist prophesy what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit falls. We see Jesus baptized and we see signs of the Spirit and the, the affirmation of his ministry. And then we come over to Acts and we see it all coming together in the body of Christ, the church, as God fills his body with his breath to be his witnesses in the world. The coming of the Holy Spirit is a passing of the torch, so to speak. As the ministry of the building of his kingdom, the sharing of his gospel, his good news, is passed from the Son of God to his body and his bride, the church. And that's you and I. The coming of the Holy Spirit fulfills the promises of Jesus that we read about last week. The, the promise to provide an advocate, to provide a helper or a comforter. And the impact in the lives of the disciples is immediate. It is an immediate impact. We see that in verses 5 through 20 of Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, 5 through 20, it says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderness because, because each of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and other parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine to drink. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We see this amazing turnaround. We, we don't have to, it, it, we're only, understand that we are only weeks removed from the crucifixion of Christ. We're, we're only weeks removed from Peter denying Jesus and, and cursing, his, calling down curses on himself to try to separate, create distance. We're only, we're only weeks removed from the disciples all scattering and running from Jesus. We're, we're only weeks removed from them hiding for their lives and going back to their previous careers. 
We're, we're only weeks removed from them completely abdicating their responsibility as Jesus' disciples and trying to create as much distance as possible to save their own skin. And here we are, the Spirit comes, and these cowardly lions are suddenly standing in the streets of Jerusalem, a full Jerusalem at festival time, proclaiming the glories of God. This is evidence of the work of God's Spirit and, and nothing else. What a complete turnaround. What, a, what an amazing transformation in their lives. They can't keep the message of Jesus to themselves. And even if they wanted to keep the message to themselves, do you notice they really can't? Because how do they get the crowd? It's not Peter going outside and seeing everybody passing around by and saying, hey, disciples, let's all gather everybody in. Everybody come in close so you can hear me. We don't have the sound system today. So come on in, and I'm going to tell you about what Christ has done. No, he doesn't have to do that. You know why? Because everybody has heard the, the, the noise the Spirit is making. So the Spirit draws the crowd to them. Ready or not, here it comes. And I think sometimes that's the reality of our witness in the world. You know, the moments that, that I've made the biggest impact, I think, in my own life are not the moments I've planned for. It's the moments that just suddenly come upon me, where I kind of meander or stumble into it. And I have no choice but to try to, to do my best to represent Jesus in that moment. The Holy Spirit will bring us to moments where it feels uncomfortable, where maybe we're not sure what to do. But if we follow the Spirit's lead, the Spirit will work to help us be witnesses for Jesus in those moments. The only experience and education that was required, the only experience and education that is required for us to serve as witnesses for Jesus is an encounter with the risen and living Lord. It's the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, which will both provide us with opportunities and enable us to make the most of them when they we're willing to step into them. I loved the text message from Tim last week. I loved the text message. I'm actually going to pull it up here on my phone. And I asked Hayden if I could share it this morning with you. Tim sent me the message that, that he wanted to get together with me to, to meet with um, Hayden. He says, follow up, we're thinking to stop by and see you when Hayden gets out of school tomorrow. Will you be available around 4.15? I said, yes, sir, I'll put that in my calendar. He says, awesome, looking forward to it. Hayden's been telling everyone who will listen about it. Now that may seem inconsequential, and you may think to yourself, why did he just read the text? Because here we have an example of what the Holy Spirit should do within us. An eight-year-old boy who cannot keep it to himself. He's not necessarily choosing to go out and say it. He just can't help it. I remember Caden, when, when, we, did, when, he, when we did Cadence's baptism, Caden um, Greenewald, I remember her being so excited and actually saying so in the baptistry. She was like, when are we going to do this? And I'm like, just a second. You know, I love that excitement. There's something about childlike faith, and even Jesus recognized that. It's, it's when we get older than we, we think we have to have all of the logical progression together. It's when we're older that we make it all about these theological systems and, and these doctrines and dogmas. And, and I'm not saying that, that doctrine isn't important, but it is much less important than the truth of Scripture. It's much, le much less important than the, the bold-faced things that we know that are commands of Jesus. It is simple, folks. You have been saved. Go out and share. You will be my witnesses. It's a calling that each of us share and being a witness does not require some dramatic 
come to Jesus story where God has pulled you out of the pit. It simply takes a willingness to share the ways we've experienced the saving grace of God in our lives with those around us. We are his witnesses. And sharing Jesus Christ with the world around us should be at the center of everything we do. The same spirit that was poured out at Pentecost is still present. The same spirit that moved in them is moving in us. The same spirit that gave them opportunities and gave them the words to say is still here with us today. We carry the mantle of Christ's ministry as his church and his body in our world. Acts 17 through 21, we see the greatest miracle of the spirit. You notice we're not really talking about all the gifts of the spirit and how God does or doesn't do that anymore. That's inconsequential. The fact is that God still pours his spirit out on his people, still does miraculous things through those who follow him and are willing to step out in faith. And, and the truth is the greatest miracle of God is not the things, the supernatural signs that he shows in and through us. The great, greatest miracle of God is a life changed through the power and presence of God. And the availability of salvation to all who will believe. It's what we see in Acts 2, 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ has called and commanded you and me to take up the most important ministry through this great commission that he has given us. And today I would like to invite each of us to affirm our commitment to work together to share Jesus with the world. I'm not asking you to be an evangelist or a pastor or a preacher or a teacher. But this is the culmination of our vision statement as a church. That together we would work to share Jesus with the world. Whether you're a member of First Baptist Church or not, I would invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to join us in a responsive reading as we affirm our commitment to be witnesses. We're calling this commission. So please stand with me if you would join. I'll read the leader lines and we invite you to respond with us. With When it says people, I believe. What do you believe? Who are you? How have you become the children of God? Who do you love? We love How will you overcome the challenges in this world? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. God has made you a light to the nations, a city on a hill. We will declare the glory of God among the peoples. Father God, make that be true in us, Lord. May these be more than words that we have just said through rote ritual this morning. May they be the truth and, and the cry of our hearts today, Lord that we would be your witnesses, that we would share your truth, your gospel with the world around us. Lord, embolden us, empower us to be your witnesses, to preach your gospel, and to make disciples. 
Lord, make us aware of the power and presence of your spirit in our lives. Lord, give us the gifts and the skills that we need. Bring to us the opportunities that we should engage in. Lord, we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. Lord, we want to be a people that is guided by prayer, committed by faith, empowered by God's spirit, and working together that we can share Jesus Christ with the world. Lord, fill us, use us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and courage to respond and react accordingly. Make us your witnesses in Jesus' name. Amen.